been so good to see Bob and and Melba. Uh, brought back so many uh, memories. Those years working together on the campus. I recalled something while I was sitting there uh, that I had completely forgotten. They used to have uh, a ministry they call Fifth Quarter in their home. And after the football games, they would invite uh, players and coaches and people to come. And they had these big uh, feeds and would uh, would present the gospel to all the students that came. And I I'm sure when we get to, to heaven, there are going to be hundreds of students that uh, will come up to Bob and Melba and say, we're here because of your uh, faithfulness. Uh, what uh, Bob forgot is that during the 60s, while he had a flat top, uh, I wore my hair down to here and had a bushy, droopy mustache. But he continued to wear that stupid flat top all through the <laughs> 60s. I, you know, from a human standpoint, I question that, that uh, Bill and Susie would be here apart from uh, uh, from Bob and, and Melba. They took uh, that tough little street kid, fatherless, uh, lonely boy, and, and brought them into their home and into their hearts and made a man out of him. And uh, we have much to be thankful for in what uh, God used them to do in Bill Herman. I would like to have you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I have two very brief passages that I I would like to read and comment upon uh, this morning. Last week, uh, as you know, Dan Quayle revisited the site of his legendary Murphy Brown speech and reiterated much of what he said uh, two years ago, that America is a moral wasteland, that we've lost our ethical rudder, that we really do not know where we're going. There are no standards any longer. We do not know what sexual preferences are preferable. He said, uh, in part, we are living in large measure with the consequences of what was taught and filmed and recorded a quarter century ago when we seem to be building a brave new world or at least a great society. Back then, values were something to rebel against, not to embrace. And of course, today we're, we're reaping what was sown in those, uh, those years. Our country reminds me sometimes of a little uh, dinghy floating in an ocean, fathoms deep, and uh, no place to anchor. We really do not know any longer what the parameters are. We don't know what the moral benchmarks, moral reference points are. We're very much at sea. We have spent the last two Sundays talking about our role in relationship to our culture and what we can do. Most of us are not major players. Uh, We're not even uh, spear carriers. We're behind the scenes. The question is, what can we do to stem the tide of, of evil in our day? Uh, how can we raise up the standard of the Lord when evil comes in like a flood? Uh, we're nobodies. We're not particularly important. We don't find ourselves, by and large, in the centers of power. So what can we do? Well, we talked first about the fact that we are essentially engaged in a spiritual warfare, that our 
combat is not with people, it's with principalities and powers. I use the illustration of a Punch and Judy show. You can take out the puppets, the puppeteer simply produces another puppet. The better thing is to go around behind the scenes and deal with the puppeteer. That's what scripture teaches us to do. We're engaged in this great cosmic conflict. The question is, how do we get behind the scenes where we can do the most damage? We really can engage in activities that matter. Scripture tells us that there are a number of weapons, ordinances that are placed at our disposal. These are the mighty weapons of faith. They are prayer, first of all. Prayer is many things. It is intercession. It is confession. It is adoration. It is worship. It is praise. But it is more than that. It is also listening. It is the means by which God aligns us with what he intends to do in the world. We think that prayer is the way we get God's attention. In some sense it is. But more often than not, it is the way by which he gets our attention. As we pray, he begins to move our minds along the line of what he has determined to do. He knows what's best. And he's able to align us with his best. Prayer is an essential weapon. Second weapon, second piece of ordinance that's given to us is proclamation, the proclaiming of the word of God. It's that uh, quiet utterance of faith, believing that the word of God has power inherent in it, that we don't have to defend it or protect it or argue for it. We simply declare it and it does its work. And that knowledge of the word comes not so much from being taught, although that's a part of it, but from teaching ourselves, sitting at Jesus' feet, going into that secret, hidden, quiet place where we sit before him, and he teaches us. From that chamber, we go forth to proclaim the truth uh, to others. Isaiah says of the servant of the Lord, or actually the servant of the Lord himself says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, the tongue of a disciple, literally that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that's weary. He opens my ear as one who's being tutored, one who's being mentored, one who's being taught. So as we sit at our Lord's feet and we listen to what he has to teach us, we have something to say. So if you have nothing to say, you must cure your ignorance. And the only way to do it is to learn uh, from him. Take his yoke uh, upon you, as he said. And learn from him. Because he's the best of all teachers. He's meek and he's lowly in heart. He understands the difficulty with which we learn. He understands our hardness of heart. And he's able to teach us uh, at our own pace. So those are the first two weapons that are uh, given to us. Prayer and proclamation. The third is righteousness. And that's what we want to talk about uh, this morning. Now when I say righteousness... I'm talking not about a hard and harsh rectitude. Uh, Mammy Yoakum says, uh, uh, goodness is better than badness because it's nicer. Now, that's uh, true, by and large. But there is some goodness that's not at all nice. Some people are far too earnest. They're very stern about their righteousness. But there is a what James calls a gentle wisdom that is the result of rubbing shoulders with God, if I can put it that way. Just being with God, centering ourselves on him, listening to him, learning from him. 
And his character begins to rub off on us. It's what James calls the wisdom that's from above. He says it's the wisdom that's pure, peaceable, gentle, gentle, and easy to be entreated. It's not defensive. It's, uh, it's teachable. Uh, it, 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 it's what uh, the wise man describes as a face that's been softened by wisdom. We all know people that are true and right, but there's a hardness and a harshness about their righteousness that puts people off. It pushes them off of the edge, over the edge. And when we do that, we're sure of only one ally, and that's the devil. Say, The righteousness that Paul describes is, is a fruit. It's a product of God's work in us. It's the result of faith, that constant dependence upon God to make us what he wants us to be. Uh, a, a righteousness that is the result of God's pace as he teaches us one thing after, after another. Paul describes it this way. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, the products of the Spirit's work in us, is love and joy and peace and gentleness and righteousness. These are the qualities of life that are, are just so attractive to people. Uh, we become winsome. Uh, as I, Paul talks about a, a goodness for which no one would ever die, though there is a goodness for which some, he says, might die. It's that goodness that he's talking about that uh, is so attractive to others. Uh, there are people in our congregation who have such wonderful voices, and I listen to them sing, and I wish I could sing like that. Now, it's, it's that way with those that have the righteousness that's from above, the righteousness that God has implanted in our hearts. People want to be like them. They, they don't understand what's going on. They, they have a bewildering and powerful effect upon others. They have impact, we say. They have spiritual power. Now, spiritual power, as I've said over and over again, is not the result of charm or intelligence or humor or chutzpah or, or any of those uh, human qualities. Spiritual power is the result of God at work in us, changing our character, making us more influential because we are more and more like our Lord. And when we walk into a room, we make a difference. When you walk into a classroom, you make a difference. When you walk into your shop, when you sit as a student in a class over on a high school or university campus, you have impact. It's one of the greatest weapons that God has given to us, personal righteousness. Now I want us to look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 2 for just a moment. I want to begin reading with verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me by the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them I went on to Macedonia. Here's an opportunity where Paul himself was so distressed he was unable to preach the gospel. The reason he was distressed is because he was at odds with the church in Corinth. They were accusing him of being in ministry for money. They were saying he wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't one of the regulars, so he had no authority. They were discounting his writings because they said his appearance is weak. He's not much to look at. He's not a powerful person by and large. And Paul was concerned lest they reject his, uh, his authority as an apostle. He wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, urging them to deal with a sin issue within the church, an issue that was eroding away the life of, of the church. It was leavening that body with 
with evil, and they apparently were doing nothing about this uh, this matter. So uh, there were some other letters that went back and forth between Ephesus, where Paul was at this time, and Corinth. And those letters are lost. We don't we don't have those. They're not in the Bible. And Paul wrote in the course of of this correspondence what he describes as a very stern letter, and sent it in the hand of Titus, his his friend, his right hand man. And uh, Titus delivered the letter. But Titus didn't come back. And Paul grew alarmed and concerned and so upset he couldn't preach any longer in Ephesus. So they went to Troas, which was the seaport there at the Hellespont, by which he passed over into Greece. He waited up there. His ships came in. Titus didn't come. And so he finally booked passage on a, on a boat, went across to uh, northern Greece, to Macedonia. And there he ran into to Titus. And Titus told him that things had gone well that the church had indeed acted, that Paul's uh, influence had been powerfully felt in Corinth. And out of that experience, Paul bursts forth in praise. Verse 14, Thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are, he says, a fragrance of Christ to God. You remember that old uh, wind song commercial? Wind song sticks in your mind. Wind song was a perfume that uh, apparently stayed with you after you left. Someone wearing wind song would come into the room and pass through, and the perfume would linger behind. This is what uh, this is what Paul is referring to here. It's impact. It's an unforgettable influence that Paul says makes us very optimistic about our activity. He says, we always walk in triumph. That's quite a statement when you think about it. We don't always look good. We don't always see the results of our activity. The impact of our personalities don't always, uh, aren't always apparent. But Paul says, we always walk in triumph in Christ. He's drawing his analogy from uh, from history. In, in those days, whenever a, a triumphal general would come back from war, after some great victory, he would parade through the streets of Rome, much as uh, our uh, warriors parade down Wall Street in, in New York, have their ticker tape parade. Except in this case, they didn't use ticker tapes. There would be uh, women at the front of the, of the uh, procession who would be carrying braziers of uh, perfume burning uh, incense, and the incense would be wafted over, over the uh, parade and over the crowd, and everyone would be caught up into it. Those uh, prisoners at the back of the procession who were in chains, to them, the perfume would have the stench of death, but to the victors, it would have the stench, the, the smell, the aroma, the fragrance of, of life itself, and Paul says, that's the effect of our life. And wherever we go, we leave behind the unforgettable fragrance of Christ. Uh, when I was in Texas, we used to go over to Lamita, Texas, to dove hunt on a, a farm, a ranch there, and uh, the man who owned that ranch was a Mr. Montgomery. I've never forgotten him. We went into town one day, into Lamita, and he would go from person to person and, and, and ask a question or two, how's your family? And, and he, he was alert to what was going on in people's lives, and he would 
put his arm around men and pray with them over some concern that they had, or he'd speak a quiet word, and he demonstrated a profound love for people, for every life that he touched, Christian and, and non-Christian. He's, he's been gone for a lot of years now, but his fragrance lingers behind. He, he's unforgettable. People in that town cannot forget Mr. Montgomery because of the impact of his life. See, that's what Paul is talking about. We don't need to try hard to influence others. If God is really doing the work that he's promised to do in our hearts, if we are characterized by the wisdom that's from above, that gentle wisdom that is peaceable, loving, kind, straightforward, and yet gentle, we'll be touching profoundly the lives of others. Now, one other passage, Second uh, Peter. You'll turn toward the back of the New Testament and find Peter's little second letter. The Apostle Peter states the same truth in much uh, the same way. Simon Peter, a bondservant, I'm reading verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, that is, uh, his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The uh, interesting uh, thing to observe in this passage uh, are, uh, is the pronoun, the use, his use of pronouns, the we and the, and the you, or the us and the you. When Peter says we, he means the apostles. When he says you, he means us, those that, are, that were the recipients of the, of the first letter and, and those throughout the centuries that have, that have read his, uh, his book. Peter says this, we, we apostles came in contact with Christ. He called us by his excellence and glory, called us in relationship to us, and he gave us great, uh, great and precious promises, passed on the truth to us. We, in turn, pass them on to you so that by means of these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. See, that, that's how you and I got in on salvation. We didn't, uh, it didn't come to us uh, in any other source except through the word of God. The word was preached. We heard these, these great and precious promises and we believed them. And by means of them, we entered into the family of God and we became partakers of the divine nature. Christ came to dwell in us. See, that, that, that's the, uh, the oddity and, and the irony and the beauty of true, authentic Christian living. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not what we are. It, it's, it's what he is. He's not over here. He's not up there. He's here. He's resident within us. We possess the divine nature. And as a result of that, we can begin to live his life outward. We can reflect that glory out to others. It's basically the same argument that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2. God has profound thoughts about life and things. He knows what makes life work. He wrote the manual that goes with human beings. He knows how to heal hurting marriages. He knows how to deal with depression. 
He knows how to how to uh, salve broken hearts. He understands all these things. Issues about which the world has very few answers. These are what Paul describes as the profundities, the paradoxes, the deep things of God, which the Holy Spirit knows. And he takes those truths out of the mind of God and he puts them in the minds of the apostles. And then he matches words with thoughts so that what the the apostles wrote and what they taught is what Paul calls the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So the wonder of, of the Christian life is that we have Christ resident within us, thinking his thoughts through us, expressing his life through us, speaking through us. We have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels. Humanity containing deity. That's the marvel of, of the Christian life. And out of that, that divine nature, Peter says, we can begin to live in such a way that, that we have an impact upon others. And notice, notice how he puts it. He says, for this reason. What reason? I'm reading verse 5. For this reason. What reason? Well, because we have Christ within us. He's not simply piling virtue upon virtue. He's saying that there is a root within us that produces the fruit of righteousness, true righteousness, authentic righteousness, the beauty of holiness, a holy that a holiness that is. We don't we don't look like the front frontispiece of of the Book of Lamentations, but there's a there's a beauty about that holiness. This is the way he describes it. For this reason, because you are partakers of the divine nature, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Faith is the peg from which all of these virtues hang. It's the basis of all as you depend upon that indwelling uh, divine nature. He begins to produce in us first moral excellence. Interesting word. It's a word that Peter lifts out of the secular world. It was a word that the Stoics used to refer to, if you'll pardon this term in our gender-sensitive uh, environment, manliness was the term that, that they had in mind. It has, the, it has this idea of being what a human being ought to be. See, I don't have to tell you what it means to be a, a human being. You know, down deep in your heart, you know what, what human beings are supposed to be. That uh, we're not supposed to be cowardly. That we're not supposed to be dishonest. That we're supposed to be uh, 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 to be characterized by integrity and honor and justice and loyalty and, and, and genuine goodness, you see. And what Peter is saying is that as you begin to count more and more upon that indwelling life of Christ, you begin to have integrity. You begin to ring true. You, you, you become what you are, were intended to be. As a human being. Then he says, uh, add to your, your moral excellence, your virtue, knowledge. Uh, this is not theology. This is insight into life as it ought to be. Uh, this is, uh, savoir faire. This is street smarts, if I can put it that way. This is the ability to take the truth of the Word of God and apply it in, in practical, Earthly situations. The Bible is a very earthy book, if I can put it that way. It's down to earth. It deals with, with life as we have to live it. And Peter says, God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge, see, of him who called us into, into his excellence and glory. That everything we need to know to live life as God intended us to live it is, is here in this word. And it's designed to be connected to life. That's knowledge. Add to your moral excellence knowledge and to knowledge self-control. This is not really self-control. This is the control of God in our lives. God controlling our moods. God controlling our, our habits. God controlling our passions. God controlling the use of our time, our leisure time. God controlling our busyness. God controlling every aspect of, of our life. And in your self-control, he says, perseverance. That's endurance. Same word that uh, James uses when he says suffering produces patience. The ability to, to, to stay a straight course no matter what others are doing. No matter what the contraindications are. To pursue righteousness. To do what we know is, is right no matter what it costs us. And to your perseverance, godliness, that's the word for worship, devotion, love, adoration for God. Uh, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. We, li- we live in a world that has grown so hard and so indifferent to human, human need. Nobody wants to, you know, they're all trying to get along without the complications of love. Because love costs too much. So people don't care anymore. But yet yet underneath, see, there's a terrible, gnawing emptiness that all experience, that meaninglessness that exists in the world because we were made to be loved. We were made to love and to be loved. And without that, our hearts are broken. Emily Dickinson says, when, when standards go, meaning is beggared. What she means by that is meaning goes goes begging. It's impoverished. And that's our world today. It's this great hunger for love. You know, Idaho is a place where, where, you know, men are supposed to be tough. I know a lot of tough men, but I also know that down underneath all that toughness is a little boy's heart of putty. Most of them are desperately looking for love. I can't out-tough them, but I can love them. And that's what opens up people's hearts. The most unlikely people out there or desperately looking for love. Peter says, love them. Treat them like real people. Care about them. Let your heart be concerned with the things that concern the heart of God. You walk into your office, don't treat your secretary like a stick of wood, like a piece of furniture. Care about what's going on in his life or her life. Care about your employers, your employees. Don't use them to foster your own interests. Love them. Care for them. Be generous to them. Love the person that serves you, the clerk in a store. You find people out there, the most unlikely sorts of people who seem to have no interest whatever in the things of God. Down inside is that quiet desperation that Kierkegaard talked about, that deep hunger for meaning and sense out of life. And as we come in contact with them, as we touch those lives, we have impact upon them. If we're living out the life of Christ... I want to leave you with Peter's bottom line here. Uh, This is striking when you think about it. If these qualities, verse 8, are yours and increase, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand what he's saying? You may be bedridden with a lingering disease and unable 
to get out of your bed and do anything, you can still be useful. You may be housebound with a bunch of children. You can't, can't get away from them. can't be involved in any kind of ministry. You can still be useful. You may be in a setting where you're forbidden to, to speak the name of Christ or to, to give witness to anyone around. You can still be useful. You can be useful and fruitful because righteousness itself has an impact upon people. And people will be drawn to you. They, they will want to know the, the secret of your, of your life. They, they, they will listen to you sing, and they, they will want to sing like you. That's why, that's why Peter says, um, be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. If you're a person who has hope and joy and life and love and, and goodness and generosity in this world, you, you're weird. You're different. And people are going to want to know, what, what is it with you? And they will ask, and you'll have an opportunity to tell them the source of your strength. It does not reside in me. It is because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you see. Now, many of you are in situations where you, where you can't say anything, but you can live it out. You see. Jesus said, let your light shine before men and women so they will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Jesus gathered on one occasion a, a motley assortment of, of peasants, not, none of whom had been more than 20 miles away from home, and he said to them, you, and this is literally what he said, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. This in the face of the Roman Empire with all of their sophistication and power, and the, the heritage of Greek thought, the intellectualism that pervaded Rome during that time. And Jesus says, that, that, that's a place of darkness. That's a place of corruption. You and you alone are the agent that can dispel light. You and you alone are the, 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 the people that God can use to arrest the spread of corruption. That's what salt was used for in, in those days, not only for seasoning, but also for a preservative. Isn't that amazing? That just by being God's woman, just by being God's man in a corrupt environment, you can push back the evil. By just having a... a, a, a just through a quiet display of, of the life of Christ, wherever you go, just loving people and caring for them and speaking the truth to them and ministering to them and, and serving them and, and, and refusing to go along with those things that, that you know are, are wrong, taking a, a stand when, when you have to and, and living out righteousness where, where you are. You, you can be the agent that arrests the spread of, of corruption, you see? A couple of years ago, I came across a little book that Mother Teresa wrote called Words to Love By. And I want to leave you with her, her bottom line. She said, just allow people to see Jesus in you. To see how you pray. How you live a pure life. This is how you say. This is the way. Let's pray. Father, we all want to change the world. We don't want to see our world go on in, into ruin and, and wreckage. And more importantly, we do not want to see people go on in, into ruin. 
Help us to snatch them out of, out of the fire, as Jude said. Give us a, a deep love and passion for people around us. We would ask that, that in dependence upon you, as you show us what we would do, that we would find ourselves in the right place at the right time so we can say the right thing to the right people. We pray that our, that our words would be true to the truth, that we would simply speak to others what you have spoken to us. And as we learn, as we acquire truth, that we would, we would proclaim that truth to others. And then, Lord, that we would back up that truth by a life that is an exhibition of, of your goodness and your grace. That you would touch every element of our life so that we would, in thought and word and deed and attitude and action, every aspect of our life would be a, a vivid, unforgettable display of the beauty of Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.